Let's turn together to Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 12. I've laid it out, and uh, we are going to be able to finish the book of Hebrews in a really a short time. By short, I mean comparatively short. It's not like we're going to spend the next six months finishing it up. Instead, we have a, a layout of probably about six more messages to finish up this book. Hebrews has been a, an overwhelming study. I started uh, When I started Hebrews, I told you I was really intimidated by it. It seems so in- intimidating because the doctrine is so rich and deep and, and solid and thorough. And, uh, and yet, boy, what a great blessing it's been to study it and to recognize the superiority of Christ. You may remember that when we talk about uh, the book of Hebrews, we're really presenting uh, a book that is giving a number of pictures of Christ. And, and I use this illustration. Uh, a number of years ago, Blake and I um, had, had gone and run a marathon at Walt Disney World. And uh, what they would do is they would make a huge picture of Donald Duck. And you could kind of see Donald Duck there, but Donald Duck really was made up of a bunch of tiny little pictures of all the people who were running. And I happened to wear a purple shirt. And so uh, I don't remember why they needed purple in the big picture. But you, you could find me about, I don't know, seven times in, in that picture. And I, I didn't get it, but Blake has the poster and so Blake has this big old poster of a, of a general picture that you could see, but is made up of all these tiny little vivid pictures. And in so many ways, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. All sorts of tiny little snapshots and vivid pictures of who Christ is. And all of those tiny pictures then give this overall vivid picture that Christ is superior. He's greater than anything else that we could know and follow and, and go to. When we talk about the superiority of Christ, I've done something tonight to give you an outline so that you can kind of view it and review what we've done and kind of help us get into the passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at tonight. We've looked at the superiority of Christ in His person. That means who He is in His character. And that's in chapters 1 through 4 where we find that Jesus is better than the prophets, all of the other prophets that had come before. But God in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. And he's better than the angels. In the angels in chapter 1, he's referring to he's better than the angels because of his deity. He is God. And chapter 2 speaks of his humanity. And even in his humanity, is better than the angels as far as the ministry that he has to, to people. So he's better than the angels. He's also better than Moses. That's what chapter 3 was teaching. And chapter 4 is teaching that he's better than Joshua. Better uh, as far as the rest that he brings. And he brings us into the true rest of obedience And so he's better than uh, Joshua or those who entered the land of Canaan. He's also better than Aaron. And that was expressed to us in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where he is a better priest than Aaron. And as a result, he has the priesthood of Melchizedek. A priesthood of Melchizedek takes us from not only the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. And Christ is superior, superior also in his work. And in his work, here's what we find. He's a better priest. That's chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's long. It takes a long time for us to understand how he is better than Melchizedek and how he's different than Aaron and the, the priest of Levi because he's of the kingly tribe. And of the kingly tribe, he's able to be king and priest. And as a result, he has an eternal priesthood that's far better than anything that the world had to offer. He has a better ministry in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, where the sacrifices, the ministry, the service that he provided is better. He has a better covenant that he supplies. That's chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. He brings us into the new covenant, not just the old covenant of the law, but now he brings us into the new covenant by which the Spirit of God transforms and changes us. He has a better sanctuary that he's entered into. It's not just the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, chapters 9, 1 through 5, but he also brings us into the very real sanctuary, the very presence of God into the heavens. And he's able to go into that holy of holies before God and bring us into peace and fellowship with him. He provides better service for us in chapters 9, verses 6 through 10, where he talks about sacrifice, and that sacrifice helps us conclude that he provides a better redemption. When it comes to his work, his work is a better redemption, and that redemption is described for us in chapter 9, verses 11, through chapter 10 and verse 18. Now, when we come to chapter 10, verse 18, there's a passage that I want you to look at and become familiar with. And we are going to stand with reverence for the Lord and his word in just a moment. But I want to preview uh, our reading in, the, in he, chapter 12 just for a moment. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. This is a dramatic transformation where he has turned from doctrine into practice. He's now talking about the application. He not only talked about the superiority of Christ, but now he's saying, if Christ is so much better, this is how it should affect your life. And so he tells us that not only is Christ better, but he talks about how that the Christian faith is better. He talks about the superiority of the Christian faith, and he begins with these words, Therefore, brethren... 
having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word, therefore, is making the transition, again, from doctrine into practice, into living. And it's not just what we believe about Christ, but how that affects our life. And understand that according to this book, this is not just a doctrinal treatise. This is a book that is written for exhortation and is exhorting you and is warning you and is telling you that if Christ is so great and if he is so far superior, then make sure that you do not abandon Christ. Don't turn away from him. Don't abandon him. Don't disobey him. Don't disbelieve in him. Hold fast to Christ is the word that he used. And if we're going to hold fast to the Lord Jesus, then he tells us that the Christian faith is going to produce three things, all of which are introduced in this passage. It introduces faith in verse 22. We draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It introduces hope. Verse 23. We hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And then it produces love. And that love is found in verse 24. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So that basically what we find now in the Christian faith is we find this threefold uh, outline that we're following. We find a history of the Christian faith in uh, in chapter 11. So in chapter 11 is the hallmark of faith that's building upon that exhortation. Let us hold fast. Let us make sure that we're continuing in faith. Then when he talks about hope, we really have a description of our endurance in hope in chapter 12. And then we talk about our continuance in love in chapter 13. You don't have to take my word for it. I'm not just being clever. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. And then everything in chapter 13 is going to be about the continuance of love. Within that continuance of love, we're going to find three messages. We're going to find love in action, verses uh, 1 through 6. We're going to find love in submission, verses 7 through 17. And love in completion, verses 18 through 25. That is the continuance of love. It's right there. It's, it's plain and obvious. This is an outline that he himself had given to us. But before we get to love, we need to continue talking about the endurance of our hope. And the endurance of hope is what is given to us in chapter 12. If all of chapter 11 is about faith, most of chapter 13 is about love, then chapter 12 is all about endurance. And the endurance that he's talking about is the endurance of our hope, persisting on, uh, having this confident expectation that we would call hope. And so even though the word hope isn't going to be repeated over and over again, the word endure is going to be repeated over and over again. And this is the endurance of our hope. Let us now see the passage that we're coming to tonight. Look at verses 12 through 17, and now let us stand with reverence for the Lord and His holy word, as I read aloud, aloud, and you follow along in your own Bibles. We have seen in verses 1 and 2 the race of endurance, and that is the endurance of hope in the race that God has given to us. And then we also find in verses 3 through 11 that we endure chastening. And now we're going to see the continuation of this race, and we're going to overcome some enemies that are challenges to our endurance. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. This is the word of the living God. Would you please be seated? When we see the word of God, we have strong exhortations, exhortations toward action. And the exhortations are always coupled with a warning. This book is filled with the warnings that tell us to not do not depart from Christ. It begins in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when it says we should not neglect such a great salvation. And then he warns us about disbelief, and he warns us about falling away from Christ. And here we have a warning that says, make sure that you're not like this fornicator Esau who had fallen away. And when he had fallen away afterward, he was looking for an opportunity for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It was not available to him. In other words, 
exhortation toward acts of obedience and faith are always coupled with a, a warning that says, make sure that you're not falling away in disbelief. So here's what we find. A passage that is giving us some strong exhortations regarding the enemies of your endurance of hope. Now, I believe that he's taking up the metaphor that he had used previously where he said, consider Christ, look diligently to Christ, run with patience or run with endurance the race that is set before us. When he's telling us to do that in verse 3, he says, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And he's now returning to that idea of weariness when he comes and he tells us that there are certain enemies of your endurance, enemies of your your persevering and, and hope. And so here's what I would come and I would tell you as a church that's filled with lots and lots of runners. And I'm grateful for as many runners as we have in this area. And uh, grateful to have one of our runners right here. He's someone who just beat me in the, in the Walk for Life 5K. And so, Austin, congratulations. You're one of about at least 10 people in the church who I know can beat me, including a bunch of junior hires who run at the Classical Academy. Uh, Jackie's grandchildren, both son and grandson and granddaughter, both can, can beat me. But the point is, there's a lot of runners in our church, and there are, certain, there are certain enemies to endurance. And some of these enemies to endurance are not only physical, but they're also spiritual. And these are some of the enemies to endurance, and I want you to notice uh, four of them that are here. In verses 12 and 13, he warns us about weariness, that weariness is an enemy to our hope and an enemy to endurance. He warns us about divisiveness in verse 14. That is a definite enemy to our endurance. Then there is bitterness in verse 15. That is an enemy to our endurance. And finally, selfishness, verses 16 and 17. So he gives us some direct commands. Strengthen, pursue, look carefully. And in all of these things, he is warning us about things that would keep us from enduring and running with patience the race that is set before us. Now, if we're going to endure in this race, the first enemy that we have to overcome is the enemy of weariness. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Obviously, verses 12 and 13 is a link right back to what he had told us in verses 1 and 2 when he says we're in this race. Within this race, we're to look continually to Jesus. And when we look to him and lay aside every weight, and when we're, uh, when we're resting in the, continuing in this race, he tells us not to grow weary. Did you know that weariness is something that is uh, it's a constant struggle and battle in this Christian life, in this Christian fight? You know, this is, uh, it's, not, it's not an easy thing that you are entering into when you in, enter into the Christian faith. I've told you just even last week, we talked about how there's this paradox Strong confusion by which Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle in spirit, and you will find rest for your weary souls. So on the one hand, Jesus offers rest, but at the same time that he offers rest, there's an understanding that this Christian life that we're engaged in is not something that is for the lighthearted. It is something that is wearying. It's uh, overwhelming. And the only way that we can overcome that weariness is by looking continually unto him. So here's the picture that he gives, and he tells us that we are to look out among ourselves and watch out for people whose hands are hanging down. Have your hands hanging down is definitely a picture of someone who is weary. I've been watching just a little bit of uh, some some people who box or are involved in mixed mixed martial art things. And I saw a guy who uh, was involved in a five-minute round. And after that five-minute round where he was pretty much getting pummeled the whole time, he'd get, taken some serious shots to the head and was beaten and sore. And, man, when he walked back to his corner, his arms were hanging down. And his arms were hanging down to the point where he was so weary, so out of it, that his manager grabs him by the, the hands, and he grabs his hands, and he lifts them up, and he starts dancing with him, like, you know, boxers do, moving light and quick. And as he's bouncing around with them and causing the other guy to bounce, he's waving and moving his arms, and he's lifting up those weary arms. Lifting up those weary arms is exactly the picture that is here, that when we come regularly to the church and gather together, there are going to be hands, which you see, that are hanging down. And part of our endurance is to see people whose arms are hanging down spiritually, and it might not just be spiritual, You might actually be able to look at that person who's just physically, their arms are drooping, they're weary, and you're coming alongside those people to lift up their arms and to help them and to support them and encourage them. This is not an idea that the author of Hebrews came up with himself. It goes back to the prophecy of Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 4, where we find similarity where it talks about those that are weary. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 4 says, 
The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and the blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know the best way to strengthen someone who is becoming weary? You point them to the reality of the resurrection and the end times. You point them to eternity. And even uh, 1 Corinthians 15 ends with these words. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. When your arms are hanging down, when you're overwhelmed, you're weary, you just don't see the fruit that you have. That is the time to remember that God will come and there is eternity. And when God comes to save you and there is all of eternity, then it reminds you it reminds you, and it encourages you press on. The pressing on that we're doing is always looking and remembering before us, we're looking unto Jesus. And as we're looking unto Jesus, we're looking to that finish line and encouraging each other toward that finish line. I know that it was a, a great boost of my strength uh, when I'm running a race to have people who are standing beside, maybe ringing a bell, maybe sounding a horn, maybe just shouting out encouragement or, uh, or just giving some sort of uh, boost. And those are the people who are coming alongside and just pointing us to that end and saying the end is close and you can make it finish, go strong. And that's exactly what this passage is describing when it says that there is an enemy to continuing and persevering in that Christian faith. And that is weariness. Man, I can think of so many people who grow weary just by nature. If there's anyone that I would think that becomes weary more than anyone else and their arms get heavy, so heavy they can't even lift their arms, I'd have to think of, uh, I'd have to think of my wife when she's a mother who's caring for all those children. And she's not so much that case now. And Nancy now talks about all the different stages that the children were in. And she said, man, you know, now it's not the physical exhaustion like I experienced for all those years. The physical exhaustion is when my arms just were hanging down and I was so overwhelmed. I was so burdened. Well, we had five kids. And at uh, one time, I can remember at one time, we had four kids that were all in diapers. I mean, just that's, that's wearying, just thinking about it. And so when you think about all of the weariness, then we come and we recognize, man, sometimes there are going to be mothers that we find whose arms are hanging down. And it's not just spiritual, but you can see it in their eyes and you can see it in their body. And that's why things like apples of gold that we had talked about as far as a ministry where older women are coming alongside and helping those younger women and encouraging them to love their wives, love their husbands and love their children and care for them. Uh, and they're coming along to love on them and dote on them. You know what they're basically doing? They are strengthening weary arms and they're lifting up ha- hands that hang down. But it's not just hands that hang down because maybe a mom who's physically exhausted. It might be hands that hang down because of just overwhelming struggles against the world and the flesh and the devil Maybe it's battle-weary Christians. And when you find battle-weary Christians that would say, like the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? How desperately he, as a weary, battle-weary person, needed someone to come alongside, lift up his arms, bounce with him a little bit, shake him, and help him get his legs moving, the blood flowing, so that he's ready to go yet to another round of that fight. Maybe it's because there's some other weariness. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's family weariness as far as uh, conflict within the home, or maybe there's relationships that are struggling. But when I'm talking about the weary, weak hands, and I'm talking about the feeble knees, and the feeble knees are the second thing that happened. The, the second thing that you see in a boxer who's weary is not only do his arms begin dro- drooping down, but then his legs get a little bit shaky, and his knees are now getting wobbly. When his knees are wobbly, man, you've got some trouble. You need to get alongside that person. You need to strengthen, refresh them. When I think of all of this, I can't think of one great example of a man in the Scripture. And you would say, ah, weariness, that's for the weak. That's for people who just can't make it on their own. No, I think the greatest warrior that I know in all of Scripture was a man named David. And David himself would become weary. He was so discouraged at the point where he said, ah, you know what? I'm going to die. Your dad's going to kill me, Jonathan. Nothing's going well for me and be overwhelmed. And that's when he needed his friend Jonathan to come alongside and encourage him in the Lord And the encouragement that Jonathan gave him and the Lord was basically strengthening those that are weary. Not only do they strengthen the weary, he says, but then they come along and make straight paths for your feet. That is what you would do if you're running some sort of mountain marathon. If you're going to do a mountain marathon and go up through Bar Trail or somewhere like that, then you're going to come and you're going to start looking for things that are going to become a barrier to people who are coming alongside. 
you need to remove certain rocks because those rocks are going to be ankle breakers. They're going to dislocate that which is lame. And instead of healing, instead of strengthening and supporting them, you need to remove those things. And so they go and they cut out roots that are showing and they fill in holes that are there and they do what they can to maintain a a, a path. Well, that's what he's describing here. And as Christians, we do all that we can to maintain the path and make the straight path before other people and encourage and strengthen them. Do you perhaps have a gift of encouragement? Do you have what God has given to you, the ability to find someone who is weary? And when you find someone that is weary, either pray for them, encourage them, take them out for ice cream, shake their hand, pat them on the back. Do something to strengthen those hands that are hanging down. I know that some of you have that gift because you provide that for me. There are times when my arms are hanging down and there are people who will come and will strengthen me. As a matter of fact, my wife has to spend most of Mondays with me. And Mondays are my hand-wagging days. That is when my knees are knocking a little bit and I'm exhausted, physically spent from what goes on. And there is my wife who will strengthen those weary arms, lift them up and help them. That is this passage, overcoming weariness. We don't only overcome weariness, we must also overcome divisiveness. That is what verse 14 says. Not only are we to strengthen, but we are to pursue. We're to pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. Now, here's my opinion of this verse and interpretation. I don't believe that he's saying that you have to be holy, and if you're not holy, you're not going to see the Lord. We all recognize that we're going to see the Lord because we can come boldly into the throne of grace uh, because the way has been paved for us by Jesus Christ. We can approach boldly God, and we can know Him. I believe that in this passage, he's talking about no one can see the Lord. And I believe that's talking about your testimony. No one is able to see the Lord through you if there is not peace and righteousness or holiness. If there's no peace and if you're not a peaceable person, they're not going to see Christ within you and God will not be evident in your life. And if you're not holy, then also you're not going to be demonstrating or displaying God himself. So we are to pursue. To pursue is to chase after, find certain things. And he tells us, first of all, we are to pursue peace. Now, the peace and the holiness that he's describing all are enemies of, or that is how you confront the enemy of divisiveness. Divisiveness is something that definitely is draining as far as uh, the endurance of the Christian hope. And that's why we are called to be peacemakers. In Matthew chapter 5, we are told, blessed are the peacemakers. And so blessed are the peacemakers are those who are looking out, trying to find peace. Well, what is a peacemaker? Matthew 5 describes it even further. If you come to the offering or to the altar, and you're bringing your, all, your gift to the Lord, and there you're remembering that someone has ought against you, you are to leave your gift at the altar, and you're to go and seek restoration with that brother. That is called peacemaking. Peacemaking is the attitude of mind, the frame of mind that Rita had when she would come and say, I want to make sure that my relationship with the people in the church is right. I'm going to be leaving for a period of time. I'm serving. I don't want anything to go and become a barrier. And so I want to make sure that I'm at peace with all people. Well, this kind of peacemaking is what is described for us when it says that we are to follow peace with all men. Following peace with all men is described in perhaps even more detail in Romans chapter 12. I'd invite you to either write it down and look at it a little bit later or turn to it with me quickly. Romans 12 and verse 18. I actually think there are a number of different things to look at within this passage. And so I'm going to start with verse 17. How do you follow peace with all men? Well, here's what he says. Repay no one evil for evil. Having regard for, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, here's what it comes, and this gives you a little bit of a relief. A little bit of relief says it is not always possible to be at peace with someone. There may be someone who is non-repentant. There may be someone who is unsafe. There may be someone who is violent. There may be someone who is an enemy. However, when they are an enemy, it is not you who, who is holding this. You are to be peaceable. That means you're open to the reconciliation. Uh, here's what I'm getting at. Forgiveness is something that is always between you and God. You can always forgive someone, and ultimately that forgiveness is between you and God. It really doesn't involve the other person. Reconciliation is the peace that is required in our relationship, and that requires now two parties, both that person and me. And it's possible that reconciliation cannot be one because the other person is not peaceable. But I should be someone who's always open to peace with all people. So as much as within you, uh, be peaceable toward all people. Then he says in verse 19, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what it means to follow peace with all men. That means that in the church, we are to do everything we can to live peaceably with one another. Not hold on to grudges. In other words, someone did wrong to me, and therefore I'm going to return evil for evil. He says, don't return one bad deed for another bad deed. Instead, he said, do good instead of harm. That is what's necessary for peace within your family. That certainly was necessary for peace within, within our church. Now, I know that there are certain times, um, I know that there are certain times when, when there will be offenses, when someone has done something to hurt you in the church, and, and I know that there are times when there's not peace. Um, I usually know that because people who had been sitting together all the time are now sitting far apart. One's on one side, one's on the other side of the church. And, uh, and then every once in a while, they'll come to me, or their husbands will come to me, and they'll say, ah, you know what, we think we're going to have to leave the church. So-and-so got her feelings hurt by so-and-so, and now we're just going to have to leave the church. And I usually, I just usually shake my head and I say, and I remind them, can I remind you that this is not just about having your feelings hurt, this is not just about an offense that has taken place, but this is the devil coming in and sowing seeds of discord among brethren? Can I tell you that this is spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare isn't someone who speaks out of their low tone in their throat and, uh, you know, lifts themselves up in the air. Spiritual warfare is not the devil putting the tongs into the piano and making it out of tune. Spiritual warfare is found in things such as a lack of peace to where there's misunderstanding. And soon you have people who are dividing from each other and hurting their Christian testimony, hurting their Christian fellowship because they're not willing to get those things right. According to this passage of Scripture, we are to battle that enemy we battle that enemy when we follow peace with all people. Following peace with all people means that we're to keep short accounts at home. Husbands and wives are to be peaceable with each other. Peaceable with our children. Peaceable with other relatives as much as is possible. Live at peace with all people. And then he says within the church as well, this is one of the ways that you, this is one of the ways that you endure and find hope. You endure by pursuing peace. But he tells us not only to pursue peace. I don't think I'm going to describe any other passages. James chapter 3 Verses 13 through 18 talks also about peaceableness. I'm going to leave that one to your own uh, perusal. You can go to James 3, 13 through 18. That also talks about peacemaking. But he tells us that we are also to follow holiness. And in following holiness, he's not just talking about our relationship with other people. He's not talking about our relationship with God. And so whether it's our relationship with others or our relationship with God, either way, those relationships should be pointing people to Christ. Why should we follow? Why should we pursue holiness? We are pursuing holiness so that others will see Christ within us. This is the purpose of our salvation. Romans 8 and verse 29 says, For you are called, and if you are called, you are predestined, and you are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of His Son is the Christ-likeness, it's the holiness that is to be within us. We're familiar with a verse of Scripture that says, This is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that you should uh, abstain from fornication. So sanctification, holiness, is the will of God within us. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 makes it this clear. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if God is holy, we are to be holy. So we are to pursue holiness. How are you to pursue holiness? With stricter rules? You pursue holiness by maybe going to a monastery? Come into some faraway place where you can just be away from the world and away from encumbrances and just get nice and peaceful and, and holy. And somehow, you know, if you're in a monastery, you can become like a monk and, and uh, you can chant and all of that produces holiness. Uh, how do you pursue holiness? Nowadays, this is very, very common. Nowadays, the younger generation, because of what's become the hyper charismatic movement, they pursue holiness by worship experiences. Ultimately, they think sanctification happens because somehow you go to a worship service and the more you encounter God in that worship service and the more touched you are and the the more you experience, the more you will be sanctified. And so that is what they do. And that is a huge explanation for what the uh, the youth ministry is uh, a little bit north of town. Uh, Their youth ministry is based on that assumption. That is actually what they're living out. They're living out this idea that you pursue holiness by a worship experience. And the more fervent you are in your worship, the more holy you will be. Here's the tragedy of that is that I think there's an awful lot of young people in a younger generation that are wanting to pursue holiness. They're wanting relationship with God. They're wanting intimacy. They're wanting to know him. What they need to know is the pursuit of holiness is not just an emotional experience or something that you experience in a, in a service. Instead, holiness is something that you pursue in submission to God and in obedience to His Word. 
Let me give you the simplicity of pursuing holiness. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It's definitely worth your coming over and looking at that passage with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 gives us this key to pursuing holiness. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This tells us that when it comes to holiness and the pursuit of holiness, it is not entirely a one-sided man's pursuit. It's not all about obedience. It's certainly not all about standards. It's not all about separation from the world or from false teachers or from bad things. Instead, there is a mutual work by which God himself is sanctifying you. It is God who is at work in you. It's a supernatural work. How does he do that? I love this because God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the tools that he has given for our pursuit of holiness, our sanctification is, first of all, he gives us the word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And if he has given us the word of God, holiness must be pursued by a pursuit of knowing and loving and studying the word of God. If you really want to pursue holiness, I have simple questions for you. How much are you reading the Bible? How much are you studying the Bible? Are you spending some time memorizing the Bible? Are you doing everything that you can to meditate upon the Scripture? Are you letting the Word of God renew your mind and wash over and cleanse you? Are you availing yourself of what God has given in the pursuit of holiness, the Word of God? Second, He has provided for you the Holy Spirit. We are told that we are to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That means if you're going to pursue holiness, you need to surrender yourself to the Spirit of God. And this is not a big emotional experience. This is instead the day-by-day yielding to Him, presenting your bodies, your instrument. Your body is an instrument of righteousness to God. And instead of yielding yourself to sinful choices and, and being a tool for the flesh, you instead are to yield yourself to God. This is the pursuit of holiness. And the pursuit of holiness comes from walking in the Spirit, studying, reading the Word of God. And then third, this is the tool that God has given us. God has given us each other. He has given us Christian fellowship. And the Christian fellowship is by which we provoke each other to love and good works. We encourage each other. We exhort one another. We care for each other. We, straight, we, we can confess our faults one to another, and we confront each other. All of that is Christian fellowship. The Bible, are you using it? The Spirit of God, are you yielded to Him? Christian fellowship, are you forsaking the fellowship of Christian brothers by which God is allowing us to grow in holiness and pursue holiness through the relationship that we have with each other? So, the pursuit of peace... The pursuit of holiness, that overcomes this divisiveness. And divisiveness is an enemy to enduring. Bitterness is another enemy to enduring. And I have to make sure that my my eyes are right. It looks like it's about two minutes to seven. Is that correct? All right, I'm going to be direct. Bitterness needs to be addressed as well, because here's what he says about bitterness. He says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Looking carefully. Looking carefully implies that your head is on a swivel and you're checking everything out. If you're a teenager and you've taken a driving test, you'll know that there's a certain protocol. There's a certain, uh, there's a certain strategy that you follow that when you are changing lanes, you, uh, you of course, have your hands on, on the wheel. And I don't think it's supposed to be on 10 and 4 anymore. I think they're kind of more on the side. I, I think that's the new, uh, new idea of, of thinking. You're supposed to be on the 6 and the 3. Or what, what, not six, what is it? 3 and 9. Are you supposed to be on 3 and 9, Alyssa, now? Or is it 10 and 4? Do they tell you to tell you? What? All right. Well, whatever they're saying nowadays. Whatever she said, I agree with. So you have your hands on there. And when you have your hands on it, then, of course, you're getting ready to change lanes. And you, you put your... You put your uh, blinker on because you're needing to signal. When you put that blinker on, you're looking in the mirror. And when you're looking in the mirror, aware of all the circumstances that are around you, it is not enough ever to just look at the, in the mirror. You have to look over your shoulder. And so when you look over your shoulder, that becomes another opportunity to look. And what you're looking for is a blind spot. You're looking diligently, lest there's a blind spot. And if you don't look diligently, you're going to pull into somebody, and there's a tremendous amount of damage that can happen. This passage is saying that there's a tremendous amount of damage that can happen if you are not looking over your shoulder and diligently watching out for this blind spot, and that is bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness is a strongly unpleasant feeling. It is extreme enmity or hatred. If I were to describe bitterness, ultimately bitterness is the holding on to something that is the exact opposite of forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is to be loose-handed, to, to be free, to loose something that is there. The exact opposite of loosing it is holding fast to it. And so we've had dogs in the past who would be bitter in their ability to hold on to a, a knot or a rope. And so you have a rope and a bunch of knots in it, and that dog would be able to growl and grit his teeth and hold on firmly. And I've had dogs before that are so strong that as you're doing a tug-of-war with it, the dog can... Get, well, I've lifted dogs off the ground by the rope. And so you lift a dog off the ground as it holds on firmly. That is a picture of bitterness. The picture of bitterness is holding on to something that's happening against you, and you're holding on so much that even just describing it makes me all tense in my throat, and makes my face tense, makes my hands tense. You know what? It's horribly unpleasant, and it's horribly unhealthy to be in this, in this place. So it's unpleasant, and what is it that, that causes it? Well, some people will just refuse to let go of certain losses or hurts. Sometimes they may lose acceptance. They've lost the acceptance of a parent, and that leads them to bitterness. Or they lost the acceptance of a, of a brother, like, like uh, Cain and Abel had lost the acceptance of God. And some become horribly angry and bitter when they've lost the acceptance of other people. Sometimes there would be a new guy who comes to school. And when the new guy comes to school, he takes your position on the ball team. And you've lost that position. Having lost that position, you become resentful. You, you're hurt. You're resentful. And you refuse to let it go and you become bitter. Well, bitterness doesn't just happen for teenagers. It also happens when you lose a person. Maybe you lose a person in death. Sometimes at the death of a loved one, will people who just refuse to let it go, they forget to, they refuse to forgive God of it for letting that person die. And it leads to bitterness. They hang on to it. Or maybe there'll be someone who loses someone in a divorce. Either spouse or children who are affected by divorce can sometimes refuse to forgive, refuse to let go, and soon their hurt becomes bitterness, resentment, and it just brings destruction. I've known an awful lot of single people who, after the breakup with someone, they become bitter. And so a young, a young lady might become bitter to where now she's not just resentful about the young man that she broke up with, but now she basically thinks all men are pigs. And so I hate all men would become her attitude, and that becomes the idea. She becomes bitter as she's lost something and she's holding on to it. Not only would you lose acceptance or lose a person, you might lose a possession. They become discontent because they've lost something. They become jealous. They become bitter. A man named Simon the Sorcerer had lost his source of income in the book of Acts. And when he lost his source of income, he became angry, he became bitter. He lashed out at other people, had them thrown in jail because of this loss of possessions. Others lose positions or, or titles. There are some people who get passed over for a job because they're the wrong color or the wrong gender or the wrong age. Boy, that one's happening a little bit more all the time now. And when that happens, boy, you can become bitter. And what becomes bitter is you're legitimately hurt. And so here's the process. You become hurt. Maybe it's unintentional, but it's still hurt. And when there's that hurt, that can become a source of resentment. If you don't forgive, if you don't hold loosely to it, that resentment becomes something that you get more and more preoccupied with. And soon you're thinking about revenge. You're thinking about how you can strike them back. And the problem is, it doesn't hurt you or it doesn't hurt them. It only hurts you. And so ultimately, as it ultimately only hurts you, I want to provide not only a definition of bitterness, but, but I want to describe some of the dangers of bitterness. There are physical dangers where more and more doctors are linking physical ailments to negative emotions. Bitterness can cause ulcers, some forms of cancer, high blood pressure, glaucoma, exhaustion, and other ailments. It certainly even affects your appearance. When you see a, a bitter person who's holding on to something that has affected their life, it may cause baggy eyes, it may cause a hard, hard face, just the setness of their jaw, tight-fisted as they walk around. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Bitterness is really dangerous in, for you physically. It's also dangerous emotionally. Bitterness zaps your emotional energy. It leads you to anger, violence, temper. Sometimes you feel out of control. And all of that, again, goes back to this root of bitterness that's springing up, troubles you, and by it, many people are defiled. There are spiritual dangers. Spiritual dangers means that bitterness leads to the fleshly responses that are mentioned in Galatians 5. And so it will lead to outbursts of wrath. It will lead to anger. It will lead to murder. It will lead to drunkenness. It will lead to fornication. It leads to all forms of sin. Bitterness definitely has spiritual dangers, but this is the worst. It also gives a place to the devil. The Bible says, keep a short account of your anger. And he said, by doing this, do not give place to the devil. It gives it an operating point by which our enemy is able to affect your life in so many different ways. And here's the point. Bitterness, a lack of forgiveness, is a barrier to my relationship and experiencing the forgiveness and restoration of God himself. 
The Bible says that if we have been forgiven, we ought to forgive others. And so here's the idea. There's the bitterness that is holding firmly to something. And you've got to watch carefully for that because it is sneaky. And when it's sneaky, it comes in. I, I really, honestly, I could tell you that if I were to just mention someone's name or some circumstance, maybe your stomach would get all tight. Maybe yourself, your eyes would get just a little bit set. Your nostrils might flare just a little bit. And just the mention of that person is, uh, 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 is creating so much of this emotional or physical response that you need to recognize that, hmm, he just mentioned someone who's in my blind spot, and I better look diligently. I better look diligently to look around and be careful because, you know, my bitterness about my dad and his rejection of me all along is really not hurting my dad at all any longer. He might not even be with us anymore. But maybe it's totally destroying your marriage relationship. Maybe it's a tremendous barrier to your relationship with your children. And maybe it's draining your relationship with God. Definitely, it'd be draining your relationship with God. You are to look diligently. You say, all right, Jeff, mention this passage of Scripture and tell me how this works. He says, looking diligently lest anyone fails the grace of God. What does it mean to fail the grace of God or fall short of the grace of God and bitterness springing up trouble them? Here's what I mean. All of us are going to become hurt. All of us will lose something. All of us will be harmed by someone. Intentional or unintentional, it's just a reality. You will be hurt. People will cut you off as you're driving home, uh, as far as in your car. People will offend you one way or another. It's just going to happen. So how? what's the difference between someone who is able to forgive and release it and not let it affect them in bitterness and someone who becomes bitter? Here's ultimately what I would say. I would say that anyone who comes and appropriates the grace of God is someone who would say, Lord, so-and-so has harmed me and hurt me, and I'm confessing to you, this really hurts. And this is something that is very difficult for me to let go of. I really want to strike out. I want to get back at them. I want to, I want to make them pay. And really, I want to become angry. But Lord, I'm asking for your grace. I'm asking for you to come and give me enablement and strength. And I'm asking you to put a gracious, forgiving spirit within me And I believe that that kind of grace that God extends to you, it's really described as simply as this. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in giving grace to the humble is when you humble yourself before God and say, God, I've been hurt. I've been harmed. It'd be easy for me to become bitter about this situation, but I really I want to release it. I want to let this thing go. I don't want to become bitter. I want to look diligently. Now, I know that for some of you, I'm opening a can of worms by which we have to go and talk about your bitterness, about some past situation, and it's going to go on and on. I'm not trying to put a Band-Aid on it. I'm just telling you that God's grace is able to deliver you from that harsh holding on to point. And I'm telling you that if you are running the race like this, uh, the fists are clenched, the face is gnarly, your mouth is all tight, Everything about you is tight-fisted and tight. I'm going to just tell you, it is hard to run the race that way. And you need to look diligently in every direction so that that enemy, bitterness, does not come into you. There's one last enemy he mentions, the enemy of selfishness. So we've talked about the enemy to endurance, the enemy being uh, weariness, uh, divisiveness, bitterness, and now selfishness. And the selfishness is in verse 16 and 17. I can be fairly brief in this. As we're looking carefully, he says also, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This really fits all of the other warnings that we found in the book of Hebrews. Excuse me. And when we find these other warnings in the book of Hebrews that tells you to believe and hold fast to Christ, he would warn us right now against Esau. Now, in Esau's case, it says that he was an immoral person, but really we're not told about his fornication, except that he had married um, Canaanite women, which wasn't pleasing to the Lord, certainly wasn't pleasing to his own mom and dad. Uh, So it's not just his immorality, but then he talks about how he had sold his his, uh, birthright. And basically, here's what he's describing. Someone who is so self-centered and so much living just for this moment that he was willing to sell all of his birthright and all of the inheritance, all the blessing that he had and the standing within his family... He's willing to sell all of that for one momentary meal. He comes in from the field hungry, famished. I even call him starved. And he comes in starved. He says to Jacob, his brother, hey, he's got this meal. And would you give me a portion of that? And, and his brother's able to deceive him. His brother's able to connive him and say, ah, you know what? If you sell me your birthright, you can have it. And he said, well, what does it mean to me anyway? Obviously, it didn't mean anything to him. And so he was willing to give up all of those long-lasting blessings and all that long-lasting benefit for a, a singular, selfish moment. 
The Bible is describing how that when immorality comes in, immorality comes in in that single selfish moment. There's not a consideration of the long term in that single selfish moment for that one little meal that's not going to even last. You could eat that meal of whatever it was, and it's not going to last. He's going to be hungry again in just a couple of hours. It's not even going to last. But when he was so selfish, when he was so myopic, when he was so focused on just his temporary need right at that moment, he wasn't able to count the cost. He wasn't able to consider the long term. Instead, through his selfishness, he was not able to endure. All around us right now, all around us in Christianity and the world around us, we have Christians that are so selfish that they're not enduring in any way. They're only concerned about the moment and their pleasure for the moment. As they're looking for their pleasure for the moment, they're not in any way thinking of this long-term race. And that kind of selfishness is something that is entirely destructive for the Christian life. We as parents are doing everything we can to help our children know that the world does not revolve around them. Isn't that pretty much what kids figure? I mean, they're born. When they're born, they cry, they get fed. They cry, they get their diaper changed. The world does revolve around them when they're children. And that's how they're born into this world. The world revolves around me. Well, Esau never outgrew that. There are many, many people today who are still not outgrowing it. We just think the world revolves around us. We're living for our own pleasure, our own moment. And that selfishness is leading us to a point where there is no repentance, no return. I'll tell you, here's what, here's what I'm concerned about with all these things. With all these different things, whether it's selfishness, bitterness, whether it's weariness, uh, uh, any of those things can keep you out of holding fast to Christ. These are the barriers that keep you from enduring in hope and holding fast to Christ and believing in Him. We don't talk about this stuff. See, we're Grace Bible Church. And Grace Bible Church believes that we're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, eternal security. And we think the most valuable thing we can give to anyone is security, eternal security. If we just give them the assurance of their salvation. Well, what if we're assuring them of something that is not a real salvation? Boy, this just goes against everything that I've grown up with. It goes against pretty much everything I believe. Because on the one hand, I believe that there is true eternal security for anyone who's come to faith in Christ, and nothing can separate us from that love. I believe in that security. But I believe that a lot of people that we're trying to give that security don't have that security. And so we're assuring people who are insecure. We're assuring people who maybe said a prayer when they were a little kid, or they walked an aisle, or they had some sort of experience, but they have never come to transformation of life. That is the work of the Spirit, being born again. And as a result, they're not continuing in faith. That is why the book of Hebrews is written. It is written to warn people just like that. It says, if Christ is so great, and He is, He is far better priest, far better covenant, offers us a great salvation, and if Christ is that great then make sure that you are believing in Him, holding fast to Him, trusting in Him. Make sure that you are not turning away from Christ. Because Esau turned away from his spiritual blessing. And when he had turned away in that time of selfishness, though he later regretted it and wanted the blessing that would come, even cried out to his father, Father, bless me, bless even me also. It was gone. And when that time was gone, it says in this passage, there was no opportunity again then for repentance. I am so concerned. Someone has come to me. I mean, they've come to me a couple of times. I said, Jeff, when you preach in the book of Hebrews, man, uh, you know, you, you talk like you're, teach, you're approaching your own children. It sounds like you're concerned for your own children and their salvation. I'll say, yeah, I am. I am. Because I'm not just looking for some little profession that they've made. I'm looking for the faith that endures. I'm looking for the the faith that produces the hope and the faith that produces the love. I'm looking for the evidence of that faith. I'm looking for what we're talking about here. And I want to come alongside and make sure that weariness does not come in and choke out the seed in their life and and, uh, keep them from fruitful faith. I want to be sure that bitterness doesn't come in and bring ruin. But it's not just for my children I'm concerned. It's for you. It is for you. I've got some, i got friends that I'm awfully concerned about. Steve and I have very close friends who grew up in the youth group with us. Maybe even taught children's ministry with us. Uh, maybe even served as an elder with us. They showed all sorts of signs as far as faith, and yet now they're to the point where they don't, they proclaim themselves to be atheists. They don't even believe that there's a God. How does that happen? 
In this case, I don't know all of the things that are there, but in this case, something that happened would include a moment of selfishness, and in their selfishness, they have fed their flesh, they've gotten immoral, and that immorality has caused them, like Esau, to abandon. There's others of them. Weariness gets in, maybe bitterness. All the things that I just described. And when I describe this passage of Scripture, I want to come close to you. I want to look straight in your eyes. I want to tell you, this is not just a text of Scripture that we're rehearsing because this is what we do on Sunday evenings. This is a passage of Scripture that is giving very real enemies to your endurance of faith. These are very real enemies to you. And we must be sure that we're looking out for each other, strengthening each other, that we are following what he had just admonished so that we can see people come to enduring, genuine faith. And that is what we are desiring. Faith that will produce this kind of work. Faith that will produce this kind of fruit and fruitfulness within their life. Oh, how we're praying that weariness will not be something that causes people to turn away from Christ. How we pray that divisiveness will not become something that causes people to turn from Christ. But it does, does it not? Can you just think of how many people who are not even walking with Christ today because of some hurt that they had in a church, divisiveness, is one of those tools that the enemy uses to keep people from enduring in hope. How we pray that bitterness will not become that enemy or selfishness. How we pray that we will endure in the faith. Would you bow with me, please, and pray? Lord, I have a... I just confess that I've done a far insufficient job in trying to deal with all of the glory of this text, but it's so important. The exhortation that it gives and also the warning that it supplies and provides, and it tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so ultimately, God, in your good pleasure, would you strengthen those whose hands are hanging down and are becoming weary in the faith? Would you uphold them, strengthen them, allow them to continue and not grow weary in doing good, knowing that in due season we will reap if we don't faint? Oh, Lord, strengthen us. Oh, Lord, would you guard over our hearts and by your grace keep us from bitterness? God, would you allow us to make sure that we are following, pursuing peace and holiness in your will? Would you work that out within our midst And how I pray that we would fulfill the responsibility that's just been placed upon each of us to to do this work and work out this salvation, knowing that it is you who is at work within us. So I pray for endurance. I pray for strength. I pray for hope. I pray for some whose arms are, are hanging down. And if not literally, maybe in some spiritual sense, they are weary. Their arms are hanging down. Oh, Lord, I pray that we can find them boost them up, strengthen them, bounce a little bit, get some life back into and blood flowing in their legs, and spiritually may they be encouraged in the Lord so that they can endure. Lord, bitterness is something we've touched upon tonight. We really could have done a whole message based on that, but I pray that you would deliver some of us from the bitterness that is causing many to be defiled as it springs up within us. Help us to keep a, a close lookout for that in our own life. Help us to be on guard against the divisiveness by pursuing peace. Maybe there are some relationships that need to be brought to peace. Maybe there's holiness that we need to pursue and being like you. And then finally, Lord, I just just pray that in all of these things, you would work, have your perfect way, restore us, encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.